If you need a Bible, there's a number of them up here. Some of them have the answers in them. Some of them don't. Some of the answers are wrong. But that just gives me something to talk about, right? So I, I don't mind those, those kind of things. Um, today, what we want to do, we want to certainly cover chapter 17, but I want to introduce a, um, a, maybe a new thought to some of you, uh, maybe an old thought to others. And um, it has to do less with what is written and more with how it is written. Okay, so the Bible comes to us with lots of content, all the what all the stuff, all the what. And when you read especially the story, the narrative accounts, um, you're usually not paying attention to the, the how it is written, right? You're not thinking about structure. What's the genre that we're most familiar with thinking about structure with? Poetry. Poetry, right? And the most basic kind of structure of a poem is that it rhymes, Right? In English, this is why we like Dr. Seuss. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Okay? You can hear the structure. And in Dr. Seuss, the content almost doesn't matter, does it? The whole, the whole point is it's silly, just silly stuff and kids like it because um, they like to rhyme. Um, but when you read more and more poetry, you start to learn, like if you're reading a limerick, you start to learn that the structure of the thing is not just there as sort of um, icing on top, that the structure is actually part of how the poem works, right? So haikus are like this. I can never remember. What is this? Well, how many syllables are in a haiku? Seven, seven. It's seven and five, but I can never remember the combination. Is it seven, five, seven? Who, who likes Japanese poetry in here? Nobody? We need to get more members here who like haikus so they can teach us, okay? Um, but usually, poetry goes like this, A-B-A-B, or A-A-B-B, and we like it that way, right? Because we're all sort of like hobbits. We like to, we, we like to know what to expect, and then we like it when it happens, um, if, you've ever, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you just have to bear with me. I, I have the podium. When Bilbo gives his speech at the beginning of The Hobbit, or not The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, he's got these great little lines in there about how all the hobbits liked what Bilbo was saying because it was exactly what they expected, and it was short. And then when he said something that surprised them, they all got upset. Um, sometimes, as a Lutheran, I feel like that. I like when the preacher says exactly what I expect him to say. Oh, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. Um, why was I saying that? Oh, structure, the structure of a thing. So we get it with poetry. And in the Bible, um, I know I've said this before, but maybe not to everyone in the room here. The poetry of the Bible, especially if you look in the Psalms, the poetry in the Bible is not rhyming poetry, which can kind of hide the structure. But the structure of Hebrew poetry is called um, parallelism. So if you, let's look at an example of this. Go to Psalm 1. Sometimes if we, if we don't have an example, the words just sort of float up here. But when you have an example, you get it in, in action. So the way that Hebrew, para, it's called step parallelism. Step parallelism. Parallelism. Step. S-T-E-P-P-E. -E. Like the step. You know? The Mongolians come off the step and invade you. No, it's step like S-T-E-P. You're taking steps. You're just walking. Okay? So the step parallelism goes like this. There's a thought or a concept in the first line that is repeated in slightly different words in the second line. And the reason that's done is because um, we're slow. Right? So we all need to hear the same thing twice. That's part of it. But there's a, there's a better reason. God in the Psalms, God is giving us words that give you an idea or a concept or a word, and then the second line advances it in some way. So the first line and then the second line advances it in some way. So look at how this goes. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor sits, nor stands in the way of sinners, excuse me, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do you see the steps that we're taking? 
These are all saying the same thing, but they're advancing. It's, it's going forward. The ball is picking up momentum, right? So it's not just we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but we also don't stand in their way. We don't sit with them, okay? Now look at verse 2. Here's a really good example of the step parallelism. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Well, what does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? On his law, he meditates day and night. How do you delight in God's law? You meditate on it, right? So you can see there, the, it's the same idea, repeated, but it just advances something. Now, it's great when it's obvious like that, but it's also really helpful when it's less obvious, okay? So if you know that when I'm reading a psalm, I should expect the second line to somehow advance what the first line has said, then it helps you when you get to something where you don't quite see that as obviously. Then the how helps you understand the what. So let me give you an example of that. When we start our service, we use some psalms, right? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. How does that second line advance the first line? Tells us more of who is this Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. See how you're advanced? You take the first thing and you push the ball down the field, right? It's like a five-yard run on first down. That's what the pastor does. And then the congregation hits them with the play-action pass on second down, right? For, for you football fans. See, I don't just use baseball references. I, I do football, too. All right. Um, now, that's great with poetry, but what about stories? What about stories? right? Um, if you can think back to the good old days when you were taking uh, something like English composition class. This might be way back for some of you, less way back for others. Maybe some of you are in it. Yep. Um, you know that when you write a story, you need good content, but good story writers also know how to put it in a form that's memorable and that is kind of effective on people, right? So one of the, the nicest, neatest little forms of a story is what I would call the bookend story. A lot of times sermons are like this too. The first thing the pastor says, how do you know when the sermon's over? It's when he repeats what he said the first time, right? So this morning was all about smiles and faces. So you knew it was the end of the sermon when it kind of wrapped up with the return to how it started. Um, another way that comes out, do any of you remember Paul Harvey? the rest of the story, right? A lot of times his stories were like that. He would start a story and then there was a digression and then it came back to the original kind of story, okay? So just so you know, this is not weird stuff that the Bible would have structures in the stories. It's, we would expect it. We just don't usually look for it, all right? But one of the nice things that happens is that over your life, you learn a Bible story the first time and then you learn it on flannel graph the second time. You've never really learned a Bible story until you've seen it on flannel graph, right? Um, and then you read it again, and then you come to pastor's class, and he starts saying all kinds of weird things, and you say, oh, I've never thought about that before, right? And then you read some article on the internet, and you say, I've never even thought of that before, right? And then you listen to somebody's strange podcast, and you're hearing all these things. You're getting all these different aspects, and you realize that the stories of the Bible are what we call multifaceted. They're like diamonds. You can look in that diamond and you can see all the different ways the light refracts through the diamond. Okay? So the stories of the Bible, one of the facets that we want to look at is how does the story get written? And one of the most common ways that the stories of the Bible are written is in a chiasm. This is from the Greek word chi. Everybody say chi. That's good. Chi. And this is the Greek letter X. Okay? So why did they call it a chiasm? Because it looks like an X. All right? And the way a chiasm works, if I was going to use letters, I think I have, an, yeah, I have the example up there for you, is that you go into the story and you come into the middle. 
And then you kind of back your way out of the story. All right? So sometimes these things, these structures, this chiastic structure, is just there for memory's sake. But oftentimes, the, the reason that this structure is used by the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is a good author. He's the best, right? The Bible is not only great literature, it's more than great literature, but it's not less than great literature, right? The, let me say that again. The Bible is more than great literature, but it's not less than great literature. So the same way we read uh, great literature and we look for these kind of things, we should do that with the Bible too. So the, the point of this, the structure of the chiasm, is usually this way. You advance in the story and then you come to some central point, the real punch of the story. And then you back out and you see how what happened in the middle impacts everything else that, that happened. Right? Now, um, I've heard some pastors talk about chiasms, and they, they, they see chiasms everywhere. So, um, and I think that this is helpful just to get the concept, the idea. Think of your, your daily life. Your daily life is chiastic. You wake up in the morning. What's the first thing you do? You, first, you make your coffee, right? Then you eat your breakfast. Then you brush your teeth. Then you put on your clothes for the day. You drive to work, you get out of your car, you sit at a desk, or you go out and, and you work in a field, you do some work, then you eat lunch. That's the most important thing that happens to you, right? That's the middle of the chiasm. And then everything else just flows backwards. It's all leading up to lunch, and it's all going out from lunch, right? So the middle part of your day is that lunchtime, that's, you know, your mom wrote you a note, in your, in your lunchbox, David, I love you, you're a good boy. Oh, this is a good day, right? And then you just reverse everything. So you go back to work. You sit back down at the desk. You get in your car. You go back home. You eat dinner. You brush your teeth. You take your clothes off. You crawl back into bed. You fall back asleep. You're right where you started, right? It's a, you see the chiasm? All right. Now, that one doesn't really work because, um, you know, well, I guess you could argue that lunch really is the most important thing of my day. Um, but that just shows you that structure is inherent to our lives. And uh, if you live long enough, I haven't reached this point yet. I'm just going up, right? I'm still going in. But at some point, those of you who are older, you can relate to this. Um, you get to the middle of your life and you have a crisis, don't you? It's a midlife crisis. And um, now if it's a good midlife crisis, you buy a motorcycle. Where's Jason Brown? We need Jason. I know, but he bought a new one, right? He's had two midlife crises. So when you have a good midlife crisis, you get a motorcycle. When you have a bad one, you get a divorce and you remarry somebody. That's the bad kind of midlife crisis. And everything after that, if that's your midlife crisis, then the second half of that chiasm is rough. Okay? If you get a motorcycle, it's all good. <laughs> okay? but, you're, but you can see here, my point in, in that little story is that this chiasm is it's kind of part of reality. Right? God has created the world in a, what we might call a chiastic way. And so the stories of the Bible also follow this kind of chiastic structure, right? this X. Now, for our purposes today... I just wanted to, to point that out to you because when we read chapter 17, we're going to put it into this chiasm, okay? It's, uh, how many letters do we have? We, right when I need to point to it, that's when it fails me. A through F. I hate technology. Napoleon Dynamite saying about that. It's A through F. Okay? And in the middle of the chiasm is going to be the, the center of our story. Right? There's another uh, very kind of obvious chiasm or a helpful one, which is uh, the, the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. All right? Genesis 1 has how many days of creation? Seven. Seven, right? Six plus one, so seven. And if you put it into a chiastic structure, you get day one, day two, day three, day four, 
day five, day six, day seven. And it's really nice. You can kind of start to see how day one matches up with day seven, day two and six, day three and five. You start to see how what I'm calling the how helps you understand the what. The structure helps you understand the content. Okay, so let's read chapter 17. And um, while we're reading this, Sam, will you go up into my office and get me my power cord? Okay, you do it. You go get me my black. I got it. Get me the black bag. It has my power cord. I don't have a brown one. Okay, chapter 17. Let's read it, and then we'll put it into this chiasm and see if we can draw the, draw the parallels, okay? Who wants to read for us? Do we have any volunteers? Dave, why don't you go? Um, you read 1 through 8. Right? Another volunteer? Let's just keep reading it. Go ahead, Icy. Read, um, read 9 through... Uh, go all the way through the end of the chapter. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every man will be Keep going. No, no, we don't want any comments. Just keep going. Keep reading. Yeah, keep going. Because we the point is I want you to hear the whole thing all together. And we've already messed it up, but that's okay. Father, 12 princes, and I will make him into a great 
Okay, this, that also prevents me from just getting stuck in verse 3, and uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't get through anything. But as you hear that, do you notice there were things that were repeated in that chapter? What are some of those repetitions that you heard? Just shout them out. Okay, and I don't just mean that the, the exact words are repeated. Sometimes it will be, but the same kind of thing happens twice. Okay, there's a lot of circumcision language. Say it louder. Okay, there's two name changes. There's a double name change, right? That should make us be thinking, oh, this is a chiasm. Whenever you get those doublets, couplets separated, you're in a chiasm, right? You can sense it. You're like a hunting dog. I can smell it. I can smell the prey. It's a chiasm. I smell it. Okay, what else? The covenant business comes up twice. First, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then later he says, and it's going to be with Isaac, by the way, not Ishmael. What else? There's one just numerological repetition. His age. Yeah. The brackets. Perfect, Mona. He's 99. We're told that at the beginning and we're told it at the end. Right? That's, again, almost like the Holy Spirit is saying, pay attention to this chiasm. Right? And you say, I don't know what a chiasm is, Holy Spirit, but that's why I'm here to teach it to you, right? So 99 at the beginning, 99 at the end. Abram gets a new name, Sarah gets a new name. God's going to make a covenant, he's going to make it with Isaac, not Ishmael, okay? And right smack dab in the middle of our, oh, there's one other thing that gets repeated there. We didn't hear yet. What else gets repeated? Look at verse 3. And then look at verse, I know one of you heard it, you just don't want to say, you don't want to give a wrong answer, because you're Lutherans. Lutherans don't ever, they don't say anything because they don't want to say the wrong thing. So they just don't say anything. He falls on his face. Surely somebody noticed that, didn't you? The first time he just falls on his face, what does he do the second time? He falls on his, see, you, you saw it. He falls on his face and laughs, okay? So you start to see these structures are in there. I'm not just making this up. Um, sometimes the chiasms get really complicated. The more complicated it is, I read this article by a guy who said, I, I want to believe this is true. He said the whole book of John and the book of Revelation, if you put them one right after another, they form a gigantic chiasm. And that theory is so enormous that no one will ever disprove it. <laughs> right? So it must be true, right? Because nobody's ever proved that it's false. Um, but here's, here's how I would break it down for you. This, is, this just shows you the age of Abraham, so we can get the idea here. He's 99 when this happens. Last we saw him, he was 86. There's probably some meaning to those numbers, but I can't, that's a, a dog, that's a hunt that I can't quite figure out. Um, but in any case, we can do math, right? So how old is Ishmael? 13. What happens to 13-year-olds? They start to get hair in their armpits, right? And all the other things. And if you're Abraham, you have this promise about your seed becoming a great nation. What do you suppose Abraham's starting to think about by the time Ishmael turns 13? I don't know what to say about confirmation. This is how we should do confirmation. When you turn 13, it's time to find you a wife, right? All right, Ishmael, we got to start looking for a girl. It's time to find you a wife, okay? Because this is the only seed that Abraham has, right? Now, we looked at it last week, and of course, there's all kinds of mix-ups with this seed. This is not going to be the promised seed. But there was promises given to Ishmael. Um, and they were pretty good ones. So this is surely somewhere in Abraham's mind. Like, I got to find my boy a wife because he needs to become a great nation. Because I'm not getting any younger, right? And he's getting older. Okay, so I think the timing of this is significant. This God appears right at the turn of the tides here. And uh, yeah, so Ishmael's 13. The other thing you see here, look how much happens when Abraham is 99. So those of you who are getting up there in years, who knows, you know, God might still have a lot in store. You might, you thought that you already had your midlife crisis. It's, it's still coming, right? 
<laughs> I don't know. Yes. Uh, I think sure. I th I think it might have been um, it might have been more like R seventy. <laughs> um, when when he died, he was one seventy five. Yeah. When when I always like when people have birthdays in the congregation and they turn like seventy. Oh, pastor, seventy is the new forty. Um, well, that's what you told me when you turned sixty five, right? <laughs> That happens. Um, so I think that, uh, yes, it's true their lifespan is longer, but the Bible also uh, seems to make, be making the point over and over again that um, they're getting up there in age. They're past childbearing years, right? And uh, this comes out especially in the New Testament when Paul is talking about this. He says that Abraham was as good as dead. Or does he say that about Sarah? How would you like to be, have that written about you in the Bible? LaDonna Driver, she was as good as dead, right? She, was, <laughs> yeah, right. she didn't drink her coffee yet. Um, but the, the point is, is well made that, yes, it's true that they lived longer, but this is old. He's an old man, right? And Sarah's an old woman. And so that's part of the surprise here. That's part of the laughter. This is so unexpected um, that you can't help but laugh a little bit. We'll get to the laughter. Um, but here's how I would put together the chiasm for you. The first step, you've got 99-year-old Abraham. That goes with the last section. Abraham's 99, Ishmael's 13, everybody gets circumcised. Well, all the dudes, right? All the guys get circumcised. Um, the second step, you have just this mentioned, the Lord appeared to him. And there's no description of what that looked like, only that it happened. The Lord appears to Abraham. Did he look like he looked before, or did he look totally different? I don't know. I want to I find out. Um, I always like that, those Old Testament visions. I like visionary stuff, um, where you see the glory of the Lord, and there's gleaming metal, and there's lightning flashing, and there's all this awesome stuff. Um, here it just says, God appeared, and Abraham Okay, how you doing, God? I've seen you before, right? Um, but then at the end, it's interesting. It says the Lord went up. The Lord ascended from Abraham. And I don't know what to make of that other than it fits the chiasm, okay? Um, the third step is this business of the covenant. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. And we've already kind of seen this, haven't we? So let's see if we can figure out what's the, how does this advance the covenant that the Lord had already made with Abraham. Remember before, when we looked at chapter 15, you had the splitting apart of the animals and the fire and the smoke pass through the middle. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. And if, you know, how do I know? Well, because I'm going to make this pact with you and I'm going to sign my name on it. And if I don't, the meaning is, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do for you, you can split me in half, Right? So it's like, I, I, double, I double dog dare you, Abraham. I double swear it, right? So we've already had that. What is advanced here in this promise? Let's look at it. It starts in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, Oh, I'm sorry, that's all we wanted to say there. My covenant is with you. Uh, you will no longer be called the father of a... You shall be called the father of a multitude of nations. No longer just Abram, but now Abraham. So this new name is part of the covenant. And this covenant, here's my point for you. This is not a new promise. It's the same promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. But now it's magnified. So God is, is always doing this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like um, a snowball rolling down the hill. And as it rolls, it's gathering more and more snow. And then Jesus is the biggest snowball you've ever seen. <laughs> okay? And he smashes onto the scene in, and brings the New Testament. And all that stuff gets rolled into Christ. Yes? Isn't it more specific this time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, this this is really good that that you're pointing that out. We spent a little bit of time last week just trying to figure out what was Sarah thinking. Why did she do this with Hagar? Why did? And part of it is because the promise was not. It it was pretty. Yeah. It was. But it, yeah, it wasn't all nailed down. You know, the corners weren't all buttoned down. And so throughout Abraham's life, God keeps buttoning the corners down. Right. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the seed. It's going to be you're going to be he's going to be a king. He's going to rule over his enemies. And it's going to be through Sarah, not Hagar. Um, But along the way, Abraham and Sarah are trying and credit to them. Right. They're trying to figure it out. That's good. You should be trying to figure out how what is God's will for my life? How does his kingdom come? How can I advance the kingdom? Um, so, yeah, they screwed it up, but at least their screw-up was trying to advance, trying to work out the promise. Um, they did it the wrong way. Don't misunderstand me. But it was at least they were trying to make it happen. Yes? I don't know if this is valid, but it kind of strikes me. Not only are their own names changed, but the beloved of God, the followers of God, change from Hebrews and Jews sure. to Christians. Yeah, you could, you could certainly trace out all the name changes um, here, right? What are, what are some other changing of name stories that we know? What do you know, Sam? Well, just another comment here. And Ishmael, Isaac gets changed to Ishmael. This is when he says, yeah, we're getting, not Ishmael, we're going to get Isaac. There's a very famous name change story. Jacob becomes Israel. What else, who else gets a new name? Saul becomes Paul. That one just kind of happens. It's weird. <laughs> All of a sudden, everyone's just calling him Paul, right? What else? Peter, right? No longer shall you be Simon Barjona, thou art Peter, and upon this rock. And there's a, there's a significant one that we don't often notice, but um, the Bible makes a point to say that in Antioch, they were first called Christians. So the name change, the, the ultimate changing of name, is that you go from being un, non-Christian to Christian. That means you're little anointed ones. You're anointed all of you have that name. I am Christ. And now that we're off on this tangent, I got to tell these stories. Um, if you ever read about the martyrs in the early church, um, you find them again and again. The Romans are trying to get them to deny Christ, and they're trying to get them to worship Caesar. And all they say, the martyrs don't, some of them make big speeches, but usually the only thing they say is, I am a Christian. 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 <laughs> yeah, go close the door. I am a, I am a Christian. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what that shows you is that that identity, you know, the world around us is going crazy about what's my identity? Who am I? There's an identity crisis. And part of the, the gospel answers that question for you. You are a Christian. I am a Christian. I'm a little Christ. Um, And that is part of what we have to um, communicate to people so they don't go through this, what am I? Who am I? Where am I? Why am I? You are a Christian. All those things are are significant. Um, Now go back to the covenant. Um, So we got the same promise. It's more specific. It's magnified. And there's also, think about the Are we having trouble closing doors? Don't worry about it, boys. Just sit down. Um, What is added here to the the covenant God made with Abraham? The first time the Lord passes through the, the two halves of the animals. Now what happens? You're circumcised. And what happens? I won't put you on the spot, Rich. But just think. You don't have to describe it for us. Just think of the difference. Now, the, the ritual, the act, is going to be performed on you, in your own flesh. 
So what happened outside of Abraham, God passing through the animals, you know, making this promise, taking it on himself. Now what happened outside of him is going to happen on him, in him. Okay, so what is external is now going to be put onto Abraham and onto all of his male descendants. Okay, and, um, well, you all know what circumcision is, so I don't need to do 10 minutes on, um, I don't need pictures, do I? I have them, I have the slides. Okay, we won't do the slides with circumcision, but the cutting off of the flesh, and especially on the, the part of the body, where it is, is significant. God never does anything on accident. So the ritual corresponds to the meaning. Baptism, the, what we do in baptism matches what baptism is, right? What we do with the bread and the wine should match with what the Lord's Supper means. Otherwise, you get a ritual and a meaning that don't line up. Yes? Yeah. Well, the yeah. Okay. So one, the sign is not given for everybody else to know, right? The, it's not. Well, that's why the law comes, right? So all the rules about you know don't eat this, don't eat that, don't wear this, don't wear that, touch not, taste not, handle not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that way, instead of showing everybody whether you're circumcised or not, you just say, no, I don't eat pork. Oh, you're one of those circumcised guys, right? Um, but since you brought it up, in between the Testaments, when the Greeks come, do you know what Greeks love? When Alexander the Great spreads Greek culture, the favorite, what is the Greeks' favorite place to go? Gymnasium. The gymnasium. Do you know what the gymnasium is? Naked? It's where you get naked. The gymnos. Gymnos is the Greek word for nudity. So when the, when the Greeks come to Judea and they set up gymnasiums, now all of a sudden everybody knows who's a Greek and who's not a Greek. Okay? And one of the great um, embarrassments is that the Jews at that time, the ones who were unfaithful, they started, there was so much pressure to be like the Greeks that they started to try to figure out ways to, uh, we'll just put it this way, to remove the mark of circumcision. And they created all kinds of ways, you can let your imagination run wild, all kinds of ways to remove their circumcision. Undo it. Very strange. Yes? Is this class rated? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not showing any pictures. I can find pictures for next week. Um, but the, okay, so it's, it's deeply personal which is what we're getting at. It's, it's deeply private, um, and that it, that it is the mark put on that part of the body. Why does God do it this way? Why not just say, you know, cut off the tip of your pinky, or cut off your earlobe, or cut off your big toe? Why do it like this? Well, what is the promise? Think of the promise given to Abraham. You will become a great nation, and we've been talking in here many times. What do you need to become a great nation? You need children. How do you get children? Well, you don't use your pinky. You don't use your earlobe. You, get, you see, right? So God puts the mark on the part of the body that is closest connected to the promise. It's no mistake. Um, we, we can laugh at it because it's kind of, you know, it's, weird to think about, but God is, he's very intentional about this, right? Um, I mean, the Bible is full, full of circumcision, and it only seems weird to us because, well, we don't want to talk about that. Um, I'll tell one more story here. We, CCA uh, has a, a clergy um, appreciation breakfast, and if uh, any of the kids at the school, they write these little invitations to the pastor, and uh, this one, it's not any of the kids of the parents in this room, so I'll tell, I'll, I can tell this story. The kids write the invitation and say, oh, Pastor Uppold, we're having this appreciation, please come. And there's a spot on the invitation where they're supposed to write a Bible verse, okay? So this poor girl, this poor girl, I know one of the boys put her up to this, told her, write Genesis 17, verse uh, 24, 
<laughs> so I got invited to a clergy appreciation breakfast with this verse written on it. <laughs> Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And it was by like a third grade girl. She had no idea what she was writing. It's, it's in the Bible. Must be good, right? Um, I laughed about that with her mom for quite a while. I think her mom's face is still red from that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I've, so this is, you've probably heard this with like the food laws too. One of the, one of the things people say, oh, God told his people not to eat pork uh, because that was kind of an unclean animal. Um, and, and that's one of the sort of rationales people will give. Same thing here, um, that there's some kind of hygienic uh, reason why this is given. That there may be some validity to it. But I really don't think that's the primary. God is not just interested in, you know, I don't want my people to have germs, right? And so there may be a hygienic reason for it, but that's not the primary purpose of circumcision or all the purity laws. The primary reason that he gives circumcision is because it's connected to the promise of offspring. And the primary reason that he tells them not to eat pork and stuff is because he wants them to be separate from the nations. And as a side benefit, you know, maybe it's, it's more healthy. Um, but I, I think the jury's still out on just how, how um, hygienic or unhygienic. What's the better hygiene, to be circumcised or uncircumcised? Different people, different doctors will answer that differently. Yeah. Okay, yes. Oh yeah, circumcision is big. Uh, every, almost everybody circumcised. Um, the difference, the thing that is surprising here is in verse, look at verse, where does he say the eighth day? Yeah, look at verse 12. He who is eight days among you. So this is the center of the chiasm, right? Is the actual circumcision, okay? Um, at the center... I thought he was going to trip on that. At the center of the chiasm is this business of circumcision. And the, the shock with circumcision is not that it would be done. Most cultures, um, or many cultures, I should say, would circumcise their boys when they're 13. It was a, a, a man-making ceremony. So it was a rite of passage. All right? You're old enough now to get married. You're circumcised. Um, you're, you've become a man. The shock is that you would do it to an eight-day-old baby. And the point is, all part, this is all part of the meaning of circumcision. Okay? So one of the things that circumcision does is it cuts off, it removes the flesh. It cuts off the foreskin. All right? And for Abraham, you think about what just came before chapter 17, chapter 16. What was chapter 16 all about? How am I going to provide a seed for myself? I got to take it on myself. Sarah and I have to have this. I said last week it was a scheme, right? We've got to figure it out for ourselves. We've got to plan it out. We've got to have the power to do it ourselves, right? So chapter 16 is all about do we have the power and the wisdom to figure this out? Now in chapter 17, God says, we're going to cut all that stuff off. We're going to remove it from you, Abraham. And so he cuts off. Abraham's power. It is the ritual way of, it's, it's, it's ritual castration, okay? You're cut off, you cut off that part of the body that symbolizes your power, your strength, your virility. And so the only thing you can rely on now, Abraham, is the promise, okay? That's also connected to doing it on the eighth day. When this child is, all, is still just a baby, he receives the mark of the promise. Before the child has become a man, before he has any power, before he can talk, he's already an heir of the promise. Okay, so all of these, these things that are strange to us, they all are reinforcing the point that this thing is going to come from God. And that's what circumcision is supposed to represent. That's what it's supposed to be. Now, it gets twisted 
by them eventually. Um, but in the beginning here, circumcision is a sign that this isn't going to be on your power, Abraham. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the heavy lifting. Okay? So um, we can put it this way. It's um, circumcision is, oh, I didn't put, yeah, the war on flesh. So God is using Abraham as to demonstrate to the whole world that the, the, all of the works, all of the schemes, all of the power of man is not going to bring the blessing of God. It's going to have to be from God. It's going to have to be by grace, we would say. And if you remember, think back to what's in the background of the whole Abraham story. What happened before God called Abraham? What were they building? The Tower of Babel, okay? And the goal of Babel was we will build a tower to heaven without God. We will make a name for ourselves without God. And now God is in, in circumcision. He's cutting off Babel. All the Babel stuff gets removed. And we're going to do it a totally different way, totally separate. How did Abraham know where to circumcise? He told him on the foreskin, cut it off. He told him, I'll show you the pictures later. Um, he told him exactly what to do, all right? Now, the other things that come out of this, so in the middle is this, um, this circumcision covenant. Then everything falls out of it. Go back to our chiasm here. Everything falls out after circumcision. And there's a couple of changes that are significant here. Again, Sarah bec Sarai becomes Sarah. Let's look at that meaning, just so that we're, we're sure about this. Sarah's a beautiful name. Um, verse, look at verse 15. This is what Roxy said. Is the, it's becoming more specific. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. So remember, that was the promise to Abraham. Now it's connected with Sarah. We're getting more specific here. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, probably in your Bibles, you have little footnotes there that explain the meaning of the name. What does Sarai mean? And what does Sarah mean? What does it mean? Well, that's with the laughter, I think. The, the, both of them mean princess. Both of them are royal names, but Sarah is just a, this is very similar to Abraham. It's like he goes from exalted father to father of many nations. She goes from princess to big time princess, right? She's really, really princess, right? Yeah, beautiful princess, not just pretty princess, beautiful princess, okay? Um, and then this business of Abraham falling on his face and laughing. The laughter, uh, this is where we'll have to stop today. Um, we'll talk a little more about circumcision next week and, and what else gets circumcised in the Bible. Um, but think about laughter. Think about how laughter works. There's different sorts of laughter, right? Um, but what does, why are jokes funny? Why does laughter work? How does it work? You laugh, okay, something that you like. What else? How else does laughter work? Do you guys know how it works? You guys laugh at everything. When you see something funny, you know, you're watching the TV show and the guy steps on the rake and it hits him in the face, right? Why is that funny? Because <laughs> it's somebody else, right? It's, Jim, why does laughter work? Why does humor work? Okay, something, this, now we're getting somewhere, right? Absurd, unexpected. It's the surprise of the thing, right? I didn't, oh man, that was funny. He got hit in the face, right? That's, I didn't see that coming. Or if you, even if you saw it coming, it's still the surprise. This is why puns are funny. This is why a lot of, um, you know, the punchline of a good joke, it's a surprise. And when you have to explain it, of course, you take away the surprise. That's why comedians don't explain their jokes, right? Because it would take away the humor, but humor is always this surprise. And so God's joke on Abraham, I know we've talked about this a little before, part of the joke 
is that he's walking around telling everybody, my name is Abraham, father of a multitude, and I don't have any sons. <laughs> right? I have, oh yeah, I have one, but it's not really through my wife. It, you know, I got to tell you this whole little es escapade that we went down. Okay, so the joke, now Abraham is able, he's laughing at himself. This is funny. The whole thing is comedic. It is God's comedy. The Bible is God's comedy. And the gospel brings this surprise to Abraham, not through Hagar, not through Ishmael, but with Sarah. And why is that funny to Abraham? Because she's old. Abraham's as good as dead, and so is Sarah. And so the joke is, here's the, this is so great, I love this. The joke is that out of dead things is going to come life. So the joke, the punchline is resurrection. The punchline of the God, God's joke on the whole world, his, his joke for the world, is the resurrection of the promised seed. Isn't it great? You can't help but just want to fall on your face and laugh. Beautiful. Yes. I know how much you love progressive movements and religions. Yes. And so I see here from the New York Times a headline: Jewish women move into a male domain, ritual circumcision. So even they. <laughs> Strange. I I wouldn't think that that would be the one that the feminists wanted to say. You should do that to us. <laughs> um, usually, the, the, even the feminists are happy to say, we're glad that that was just done on the men. You know, we're happy it that way. Um, let's, let's stop there. Um, next week, we'll look a little bit more. We'll do kind of a, um, an extension of circumcision, and we'll look a little more on the meaning of circumcision in other places in the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you have sent your Son into the world uh, to die for our sins and be raised for our justification. And we thank you for the joy that that brings us, um, for the laughter that your gospel has brought into our hearts and into our congregation. Uh, we pray now that you would bless us as we go to our homes, give us a peaceful afternoon, uh, and we also pray for your blessing on those who come to worship now in our second service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.